Playlist with Ben and Fiona. I come from a family of very quiet people where not much is said and so much is like in, in those moments. Welcome to The Playlist, where we talk about movies and TV shows that are worth your time. I'm Fiona Williams, and I manage our online coverage of movies and TV here at SBS, and I'm joined in person <laughs> by my co-host, SBS and SBS Viceland channel manager. There's been some changes. Ben Nguyen. Hey, Ben. Hey, Fee. Oh, my goodness. This is so strange to be here in person. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Nice to see you in, in the flesh. Yeah, and it's, and it's almost a brand new Lunar New Year as well. All of that. It's uh, it's an exciting time to be alive. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm feeling positive about the new year. <laughs> well, look, I mean, it'd be weird if you weren't because we all couldn't wait to see the back of 2020. But um, <laughs> yes, here we are. We thought we'd do one uh, an episode of this uh, crazy podcast in the flesh. We've been Zooming for months now. This feels very exciting. And, uh, you know, what better way to do our first playlist of the year than taking a look at a brand new movie launching around the country next week called Minari. It's the story of a Korean migrant family attempting to start afresh in rural Arkansas and it's attracting plenty of award season buzz. And Fiona, you speak with the film's writer-director Lee Isaac Chung. And we'll also think back on the year that was and what's exciting us for the year ahead. That's a lot. <laughs> let's do it. That's plenty. Let's <laughs> let's get into it. So, Fee, I might jump into, you know, what have you been watching? Mm. Usually use that to kind of round out the show, but we're seeing each other in the flesh for the first time this year. Um, and I, I happen to know that you spend a lot of the summer taking in screenings by the beach. I did. Saw a lot of short films in January, February. Yeah. Flickerfest. Good old um, Flickerfest. It was my first in-person festival for a while. I was helping judge the international features on that. So it was so good to be among people safely and um, watching all the shorts from around the world. So, yeah. Mm, sounds like Best. a great way to spend the summer. And, um, you know, and sort of uh, I, I imagine there was other viewing opportunities across those warmer months? Across the warmer months, yes. I did make it to the cinema a couple of times. First time freaked me out because people sat right behind me and <laughs> I had to move and then someone went to sit. Had, had right. to have words with them. Oh, look, yeah, I don't know. People, we need to be careful. So anyway, um, it was all fine, I hasten to add, but, yeah. Can we keep distancing? I just want to say that. Um, yes, we, went to the cinema. We are, despite being in the same room, we are at a decent distance apart from each other. I just want to clarify that point. Quite right, yes. Um, so, yeah, I went to the movies, uh, saw Promising Young Woman. Oh, yes, heard good things. Yes, uh, those things are true. <laughs> um, well said. Uh, what else did I watch? Um, I think that's the only time I was in a cinema. But uh, other things on streaming services because that's kind of my habit now. <laughs> what yes. about you? Well, uh, speaking of um, keeping safe distances, eager listeners will know that I was heading off to get married last time we did one of these episodes and uh, that fortunately all went ahead as planned. But I did return back to my home in Sydney just in time for a COVID outbreak and <laughs> to be locked down. Um, so uh, didn't get out and about very much during that mandatory lockdown period. But uh, I probably did what I feel like a lot of us have done, you know, in these past few months and probably a year in that there was a lot of nostalgia re-watching that happened. So I do have to 
admit to um, uh, a sort of a family binge screening, which is still ongoing, of Downton Abbey. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, so, you know, reliving the, the roaring 20s. <laughs> Look, why not? There's no rhyme or reason to what people are binging at the moment. You do you. <laughs> Where are you up to? Um. I, you know, don't want to give anything away <laughs> for those who, um, but there there may be a little bit of a gay conversion um, therapy storyline going on, which is actually a little bit confronting. Mm. But, uh, you know, uh, I have to say sort of between an 11-year-old and a 41-year-old, there's a lot of enjoyment being had by all. Done for all the family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, 2020 was a very odd year. Just sort of thinking back, you know, I think that in a way we probably were watching more of some content than we ever usually would and yet we we probably were seeing less of other things. We know a lot of movie releases got held back mm. and pushed back. But, you know, overall I feel like it was a pretty strong year for content. I'm just going to, I went back and looked at um, some of our past playlist episodes for 2020 mm. and um, and just sort of want to throw at you um, some of the shows that we discussed. So Mrs America, for me that was that was a big highlight of the year, mm. um, you know, a really great way to, to talk about, you know, a really pivotal moment in history um, with the women's movement and told from uh, a number of different perspectives and different sides of the political debate. Yeah. Never Have I Ever was a, a fun show, um, revitalising kind of teen comedy through a, a cultural lens. Normal people got people very excited for a sort of short while anyway. Yeah. Um, Upload was a show which I had completely forgotten existed. <laughs> I just did have to rack my brains <laughs> thinking of it. Yes. Um, but it was a good time, you know, a kind of uh, take on that idea of literally uploading ourselves onto the cloud and our personalities existing after death. Um, Bad Education, I think we both enjoyed. Hugh Jackman, um, a take on the kind of corruption within the the US school system. Um, This is a long list, so, you know, (laughs) feel free to kind of jump in at any point. Um, I'll rattle off a few more. The Great, Love Life. Taskmaster, we all got very excited about. It's sort of, you know, that's a show that's been rolling out over a number of years, but we finally managed to launch it here on SBS Viceland. I haven't stopped watching it. That was a big highlight of my summer. All the versions. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. I, um, speaking of uh, my 11-year-old and also my 13-year-old, we did have a big time both watching Taskmaster, but also as a Christmas present, the Taskmaster board game arrived. And uh, and I tell you what, that's that's good good times had by all. <laughs> um, Indian matchmaking in uh-huh. the the reality dating space. Um, Perry Mason, you know, very very sort of gloomy uh, HBO series. Still haven't watched it. Hungry Ghosts on SBS. Hillary, the documentary series, um, was an exciting moment for us here. The Good Fight, I think, had a terrific year despite. The season being cut short by COVID. Um, Schitt's Creek was a big milestone for the year, came to its final season, won all the awards possible and probably even some more than that. Still got a few more to win, I think. At the Emmys. Well, yeah, more to come. Golden Globes. Yeah. So, and I feel like for a lot of people who maybe hadn't gotten on the Schitt's Creek bandwagon, um, 
you know, they're there now. Yeah. They're, they're all aboard. Uh, yeah, and if if for any reason you aren't listeners, yeah, some people tap out at season two thinking, oh, I mean, it's a nice little sitcom, but, yeah, then it then it gets deeper. Um, yeah, do it. And I was putting off watching the final season because I didn't really want to say goodbye, but, yeah, had a weekend away for my husband's birthday and just we binged the whole thing, so it's great. And I'm sure it's going to be great on holding up to rewatch yeah, in yeah. the future too. Yeah, no, it's a very joyous experience. You know, obviously it's just one of those shows where you come to love and adore these characters and you want to spend every waking moment you can with them. And so when the show wrapped up, I think that was met with very mixed feelings from those of us who who were deeply involved <laughs> with the Rose family. Um and uh, The Queen's Gambit sort of is, was one of those sort of talked about shows. Apparently sort of a lot of chess sets got sold. I do believe, yes. I've not watched it yet. <laughs> uh, I'm, yeah, that, that person. <laughs> I, think, um, I think it's fair to say for me like it, it ran out of steam, you know, in, in a narrative sense, but uh, I think it just was one of those shows that sort of landed in a quiet moment where people kind of just wanted what it had to offer. The Undoing was another show which seemed to land at a moment where people wanted what it had to offer. If only it was a better show. <laughs> Again, haven't watched it, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I heard the uh, blowback. And one more uh, which we did have a chance to chat about, which was The Crown, which I don't know if it had its best ever season in 2020, but um, you could do a lot worse than hanging out with um, Charles and Diana as they fell apart at the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> Hold the popcorn, yes. <laughs> and more to come, obviously, with uh, the next season where they'll all be recast. Um, so we get Imelda Staunton stepping in to wear the uh, the pink um, matching ensembles. Um, as <laughs> and the literal Queen- crown. <laughs> yeah, as Queen Elizabeth, Australian actress Elizabeth Debicki, as, uh, stepping in as Diana. And um, they're talking about Dominic West as Prince Charles. Huh, okay. Elizabeth Debicki is good casting, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Diana on screen at the moment, has to be said. <laughs> yeah. talk us through, Fee, you know, some of the, the shows that really stood out for you in 2020. 2020. Um, look, listening to you um, speak of a lot of those shows, I didn't watch it. I've not been <laughs> watching a lot of what everyone else has been. So, um, yeah, look, I... Just thinking 2020 is a bit of a blur because I was just watching anything and everything. So Mm. shout out to anything that was released, uh, well, except for the things you just named. Um, (laughs) I May Destroy You, I was really impressed by, as were a lot of people. Um, Yeah, caught that on on Foxtel slash Binge um, across the holidays, uh, caught up and saw what everyone was raving about. Um, Yes, and what people are ranting about because Michaela Cole didn't get nominated in the Golden Globes. Yeah. I mean, if we get started on what the Golden Globes left out, we'll be here all day, (laughs) which I'm happy to do. Uh, Yeah, no, that was ridiculous. Um, Special sub-episode coming soon. Yeah, right. Well, wait till the Golden Globes happen. (laughs) Um, Let me, Adam. But fantastic. And, you know, as as the creator and the star and just what that does with, you know, a story of trauma and um, is incredible because it's funny and light but also has that depth as well. So, so great. And this wasn't meant to be a segue, but also The Great, which was mm. um, really enjoyed. Uh, caught up with the flight attendant over the holidays, which was 
Great. I, I had a good time with that. Yeah, um, I feel like it's sort of the show that people should have watched instead of The Undoing. Ah, okay. Um, you know, in terms of a, a bit of a kind of murder mystery whodunit, mm. sort of, you know, page turner style. Very much so. I loved it. Um, right from the opening titles. I love a good opening title, but um, just that whimsical mystery noir kind of um, feel to the story of a flight attendant caught up in a murder scandal and espionage and, yeah, a lot of really complicated character, which I thought was great. Um, mm. I've never watched that show she's from, Kayla Kwekwo. Big Bang Theory. That one, yes, thank you. <laughs> Couldn't remember it. But, um, yeah, so I'm not really familiar with her work, but thought she was... Excellent casting there. Mm. And I mentioned Taskmaster. That's just my eternal favourite at the moment. And big thanks to friend of the show, John Bowen. Yes, yeah. For putting me onto it. Yeah, and you did did mention a sort of slightly new role for me in terms of SBS Viceland. It is because friend of the show, John Bohm, has moved on to um, the greener pastures <laughs> of binge, shall we say. <laughs> um, greener as in dollar signs. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I'm sure that there were sort of more noble uh, motivations than that. But, um, uh, yes, if if you uh, happen to be flicking onto Viceland in the current period um, and something is not to your liking, I'm very sorry. I'm just sort of uh, trying to keep my head above water um, <laughs> in this transitional period, but we'll see what we can do. We miss you, John. Yeah, we do. Um, another few shows which we didn't get a chance to talk about last year on the show, but... That meant something to me. The Mandalorian, it had its second season last year. I felt like it really found its itself in terms of its ability to jump stylistically from episode to episode. I think that, you know, for fans of the Star Wars universe and, and sort of newcomers as well who, you know, maybe I think there was a lot of disappointment out there for the, the final Star Wars um, Skywalker film. Um, and I think that the Mandalorian is a is a reminder of you know how that galaxy is a is a place for sort of really enjoyable storytelling that has so many nods to different cinema genres over over time. Um, City So Real was a documentary yeah. series that it was about the mayoral elections in Chicago. Terrific series and also just want to mention America to Me, which is a couple of years older but also made by the same director, Steve James, set in Chicago. Just really wonderful observational um, series that get to the heart of what makes these societies click, really. And uh, Small Acts was a series of five films um, by Steve McQueen, made for the BBC in the UK, out in Australia on Binge and uh, BBC First on Foxtel. I think if you're a fan of his filmmaking, mm. just um, both sort of by turns beautiful and harrowing um, look at the experience of the black community within the UK. And I think that uh, a movie which we did talk about last year, The Trial of the Chicago 7, there's an episode of Small Acts which I think is a real lesson in how actually to do a courtroom drama about people who are wrongfully accused of inciting a riot. I think that when you compare the two, the storylines are mm-hmm. very similar, but um, I think the end result, um, Steve McQueen's effort is is clearly much superior. <laughs> well, I don't doubt that. I, you know, my thoughts on that film and on the director, Aaron Sorkin, <laughs> May I just say Golden Globe nominated director Aaron Sorkin, don't start me. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> Sadly for you, Fee, I, I feel like the trial of Chicago Seven is is destined to um, have a bit of an awards life. Yeah, I've so lost prepare that yourself argument. for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hunkering down. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one more television series I just want to name check for for 2020 as a personal. Um, favourite of mine, Survivor Winners at War. <laughs> they they did a season which was all um, past winners who, who had claimed the million dollars coming back to compete with one another and one, Sandra, who's won twice in the past. And really, for me, there was sort of nothing more pleasurable on television than watching these sort of highly effective strategists go head to head. And particularly given that um, that show has had to call off production for the foreseeable future because of COVID risks. So, you know, I've just sort of had to hold on to that <laughs> in uh, the absence of new seasons. Where does that spent energy go? My God. <laughs> <laughs> what about movies, Fee, mm. for, for 2020? I mean, we, we already know one of the movies you don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, what, um, what excited the- you? That excited me. Well, um, happily, if, if um, listeners of the show might remember, um, I did flag a film that was coming up and I hoped would be figure in awards season and happily it is, um, One Night in Miami. Yeah. Um, it is now available on Amazon Prime, um, so please go watch it. It's a beautiful film um, directed by Regina King and she's getting director nominations all over the shop, happy to report. Sadly, she's up against Darren Sorkin, but anyway... <laughs> um, yeah, no, that gorgeous film that's set in Miami on the night of, uh, well, when he was known as Cassius Clay, that literally he changed his name um, the very next day. But, uh, yeah, set in Malcolm X's motel room and, uh, yeah, it's just fantastic ensemble piece about powerful, influential um, black men, like leaders in their fields, uh, having a conversation about how they're using their status and how some aren't and how they can, how, you know, should they be doing more in, in right in the peak of the civil rights period. So such mm. a good film and funny. <laughs> like yeah. it, it's just so warm and great. Um, also, I really enjoyed Promising Young Woman. These are all still available to watch. So, yeah, like they're still, they, they bridge that 2020, 2021 yeah, yeah. gap. Don't want to live in the past. They're out in the cinemas now. Go watch them. Um, yeah, Promising Young Woman is getting a lot of attention because it's a revenge film from a woman's perspective, but kind of not really a lot of, bit of a thematic thread to I May Destroy You, but in a totally different handling. This, you know, Liam Neeson makes a career out of doing revenge dramas, like he's a dad <laughs> avenging the death of his daughter. But um, here, Kerry Mulligan is a woman out in the clubs avenging the date rapes <laughs> that mm. are epidemic. So, um, yeah, she tricks uh, guys in clubs, well, she doesn't trick them. They, you know, she pretends to be drunk and incapacitated really. So these kindly guys offer to help her home and then as is their want, they try and have their way with her. But she's very lucid and, mm. you know, makes it clear how she feels about that. Um, it's really great. And um, much in the way this genre works with the revenge film, um, you know, there are some leaps in logic you need to take to see it through. And there's one bit I didn't quite get on board with. There's one character that I thought, hmm, would that really happen? But also it doesn't matter. <laughs> like it's, mm. it, it's fine to have a big ambitious revenge flick that, um, yeah, there's so much more that I enjoyed about it than that one thing. So, yeah, I thought it was great. So go see. Mm, um, yeah. And also one that's also actually coincidentally on Amazon Prime, The Sound of Metal, starring Riz Ahmed. He's in a metal band with his girlfriend. Um, he's the drummer. And he suffers really significant hearing loss um, and it's how he navigates 
hearing impairment. Fantastic film about disability that flips how perceptions about how people with disability, like he he comes to realise how prejudiced he was and it, just a fantastic performance by him. So do seek that one out. That was really great. I watched that one over the summer as well. Oh, yeah. No, that mm. sounds really good. Um, I wanted to just name check a few movies um, from last year. Um, De Five Bloods, the yes. Spike Lee film about four friends who were all Vietnam vets revisiting the side of that conflict and um, manages to bundle a whole lot of different genres together. Thank you for bringing that up because Delroy Lindo should be getting more notice for yeah. that role and he's not and it's infuriating. Anyway. Yeah. Um, on a lighter note, uh, Palm Springs, yeah. um, I, I just, you know, had a, a very good time with and I think that, again, it was something, you know, it is a sort of Groundhog Day type story about uh, a man and a woman who sort of get trapped in the cycle of reliving this wedding day over and over mm. and it did say something uh, sort of unintentionally about the kind of loop that we all got stuck in last year. So I think that that, that one's worth checking out if you haven't, I, I believe, also on Amazon. Yeah, look at us. Yeah. <laughs> what do we subscribe to? <laughs> um, on the feature documentary side, a.k.a. Jane Rowe, oh, um, yeah. which I believe will be launching on uh, the Star portion of Disney Plus, um, which rolls out later this month. And we spoke about this one last year, but it's the extraordinary story, which I had no idea about. I I knew about the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court case, obviously, which has had lasting impacts Mm. and and created some uh, political divides in the US around abortion rights. But the story about the woman who was the kind of plaintiff in that case is a really extraordinary life story which had to be told and and this film does it really well. No, it really does, yeah. And just one last one, I think that uh, it's not really a movie, it's more of a concert film, if anything, but Hamilton, um, which uh, launched on Disney Plus last year and by all accounts created a huge spike in uptake for the Disney Plus service was a, a, a real revelation to me. I think that um, I was very aware of that musical. I'd never seen that musical. I've got my tickets booked to the Sydney <laughs> production now. Um, I, I think that I, I'll have very fond memories of that for 2020. Excellent. Well, that's really good to hear. No, and that's also getting a bit of awards attention too because, I mean, the actual live performance in the US has already swept the Tonys and whatnot. Mm. But, uh, yeah, as a recorded performance that's on a streaming service, it's also getting a little bit of love, which is a nice little footnote. Yeah. Now, speaking of awards, Mm. Fee, um, a movie that is getting plenty of awards buzz this year, um, also sort of managed to pick up some of the big prizes from Sundance last year, is the American movie Minari, which I have just raced to the studio from an, an early morning screening of, but you've had the chance to see a couple of times. Talk us through this movie. Yeah, yeah, true. I've had, I said I only went to the movies once. I apologise. I did see Minari in a cinema. There was a Sydney Film Festival's um, summer season, which was a great way to watch it. So I've since, um, yeah, seen it twice now, and I adore this movie, and it's getting 
some love and it should be getting some more, but we'll get to that. Um, and look, this is the story of a Korean-American family in the early 80s, very early 80s, trying to establish a farm in Arkansas. So it stars um, Stephen Yuen, who, friend of the show, <laughs> he spoke to us for Okja a couple of years ago, but uh, I mean, probably best known still for The Walking Dead. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, Walking Dead was at one point the most watched show in the world pretty much and he was one of the original cast members from the very beginning and I do actually feel like the point at which he left the show was a point at which a lot of the audience started to depart the show. Mm. But I think it's really interesting what he's done in kind of segueing his career into you know, some more of these auteur-driven films. Totally. See, I didn't watch The Walking Dead. So <laughs> to me, he's only started with this amazing <laughs> raft of films because it was Okja, but then Burning, which I'm going to spruik it. It's at SBS On Demand at the moment. I think I've mentioned it before, but, um, yeah, it's a completely different uh, role for him as a mysterious, sinister kind of a guy in um, yeah, this weird triangle of a movie. Anyway, I'm getting off the topic, but uh, yeah, go watch Burning. Um, so he plays the lead in in this film, um, plays Jacob, and his wife in the film, Monica, is played by Yeri Han. There's the cutest kid who's ever been on screen called Alan Kim, who plays their son, David. He's, he's really, really good. It's really talented child actor. Ridiculous. Yeah. And his sister, who doesn't get much of a look in, but she gets <laughs> enough to be the eye-rolling sister, um, whose name is Noelle Cho. And there is also a bit of a scene-stealing role um, by Korean, I don't know, doyen, a Korean cinema um uh, Yujang Yun, who is the grandmother who comes over from Korea and she's the kooky grandma who doesn't bake cookies and mm. hard swearing and, um, yeah, it kind of looks at her bond with the young boy David who is a movie version of director Lee Isaac Chung who it's the story of his family. Lee Isaac Chung did grow up in rural America and his parents, you know, were trying to get a farm happening. Well, this, um, this I was really interested in because, you know, I went into the screening this morning without any background knowledge of the story behind the film. So I wasn't sure whether it was a sort of autobiographical or, you know, biographical or um, if it was purely fictional. Mm. But so much of it felt so well-observed and and really authentic. You, you spoke about the, the grandma character and she's a real revelation. You know, she comes in sort of, you know, maybe a third of the way th through the film um, and comes and stays with them because she can no longer sort of care for herself back at home in Korea. And I feel like a lesser film might have painted her as the strict Korean traditionalist um, who uh, and pitted her against, you know, these sort of migrant children who have tried to make a new li life for themselves in the States. But, you know, she's getting into the Mountain Jew. <laughs> she's getting into the the wrestling. I think that um, that she really is a gorgeous character and that bond that she builds with her grandson very slowly, mm -hmm. yeah. um, <laughs> you know, with a lot of humour, but that's sort of a real, really sort of sweet part of the film. Yeah, I love it so much. Yeah, she... Um, like he doesn't take to her immediately, let's say. <laughs> like he complains about having he's, to share forced, a room. Yeah, exactly. Complains she smells like uh, Korea. I know. <laughs> I um, so it's the way that they find this unique relationship um, within this family. And the whole family is kind of doing that because um, like Monica, the mother, she is not loving where they're living. Um, Jacob has come first and sets up 
a house on in the middle of nowhere, let's face it, um, in a mobile mm. home that's like the house has wheels and yeah. um, it's pretty unassuming and she's very and a little bit of a, a dark history which gets revealed. Correct. The, the, um, because they've come from California where, you know, it, it feels like they've had a fairly stable life and, and sort of they've brought up their children there up to that point, both of them working, sorting um, newly hatched chicks in terms of sex um, so as they kind of, you know, kind of joke about it and, and sort of yell about it a couple of times, you know, just staring at chicken butts all day. And, of course, Jacob is trying to realise a dream of his and kind of fulfil something for his family that they haven't been able to do up to this point. So in some senses it, it's a real kind of chamber piece with these, you know, family of five and, and the way that they interact and and. The scenes and scenes go by where we don't kind of interact with the wider world, mm. but it is such an important kind of turning point for this family. You know, either they will fail or they'll succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what it does so well. Like, um, you know, we've mentioned it's it's inspired by the Isaac Chung's own story and he'll talk to that too, but, um, you know, it doesn't linger in that. It's not sentimental and it's not a memory piece. There's no voiceover about that oh, one yeah. summer kind of thing. <laughs> um, you do manage to walk in the footsteps of everyone in this family. Like it's largely the father's story and uh, David's, but the role of the mum, like Monica, in the wrong hands, she could just be awful. Mm, like she yeah. might, it could be just frowny. Falling into a stereotype. Yeah, of, exactly. Yeah. But we do understand, we take time to understand, you know, she's cut off from everyone she knows mm. at the start and She's desperate to make things work as well. Mm, and very motivated to protect her child yeah. because David does have a heart condition. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's all part of the story. Like, and I, I love the way this film was put together, like just the cinema language of it all and that, you know, just everyone, there's risk for everything. Like David can't run because of his heart and, mm. like, they're just risking everything by moving here to try and set up. Um, yeah, and I, I just love that it's the story of migration, you know, like just is it worth the risk of packing up your family starting somewhere fresh. Yeah. So much to relate to in this and also the way they do interact with the community, like there's a church element that they try and engage with the community through the church, but it's everyone else who's the other. Like the the white people are like the freaky, (laughs) they've got their weird um, practices and, you know, kids say weird things. You're just nervous about what people are going to say to them because like they're the other in this. And, um, yeah, it's just a wonderful way to spend time with just a, Great story. I love it so much. Yeah, no, it's very beautifully and acutely observed and I I think that it's very specific to this family's experience and obviously that's very interesting learning about the basis in the director's own experience, life story, but it's imminently relatable for that specificity and, you know, you easily could transplant that same story to Australia. Um, You know, we sort of get most of it takes place you know, using the Korean language in subtitles. Mm. And like you say, sort of the America, America is kind of, you know, the other outside the little bubble that the family has created for themselves. And I think for, you know, migrants kind of anywhere, I guess, who are sort of have a, a separation of language and, you know, trying to kind of create a new life for themselves, I think it really speaks to that experience. Yeah. Well, even for me, like, you know, my grandparents came out from Scotland brought six kids over from freezing cold Scotland to the middle of the outback <laughs> in the 
50s, I guess. Um, you know, like it, there's so many ways to come into this and they didn't even have the barrier, the barrier of language. Yeah, it just uh, sets up that reality so well and with a lot of unspoken acting as well. Like there are some very funny lines, but there are some equally impactful, f- hilarious um, looks <laughs> that happen in this, but also really tragic in a way ones like that there's one scene i won't spoil it but um yeah the, the the camera just lingers on Stephen Nguyen's face and it's the whole movie in one scene where it just lingers and yeah mm, well, gorgeous well we clearly loved it <laughs> i think that it's about time now that we should hear from the writer director as it's his, his story yeah sure i mean he should get a word in i suppose <laughs> yeah. too i'm lee isaac chung so um yeah let's let's have a listen Lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for doing this. No, I loved your film. I've seen it twice now. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm a wow, thank fan. You. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely gorgeous. Look, I'd love to start, um, you know, given, you know, you're connected to this story, um, how mm. did you balance, um, you know, wanting to be true to your experience and your family's, your parents' particular experience with, um, you know, telling a broader story? How did you balance that in the writing of it? There was a lot of work in that. I I think first I started off with the personal experiences. That was the base. So I had, I had a list of memories. I had about like 80 that I, I had at the start. And that was the exercise that started the writing. And then I started to separate each of those memories according to character. Um, So, you know, this memory seemed like it fit with YJ. I mean, with Sunja, the grandmother, this, this would fit with Monica, the mother, And I kind of listed that out. And from there, I realized I needed to really invest in this story as its own fictional story and to take it away from my memories to make it work as a story. And so I shifted memories around. I changed different things and uh, slowly and slowly just tried to make it work as a as its own thing, something that that would work even if people don't know that it's based on true life. That was kind of the hope that, that I had in the writing. And, and in the casting, I mean, how did you take a similar approach? Like, you know, did, did you um, choose people who look like your parents um, or <laughs> more have the essence of, of your mum and dad or just great actors that you did? How did you? I just went for great actors, to be honest. That was my number one. Uh, I, I just thought I, I need, I, I want to work with the best. And uh, that's who these people all were for me. They're, they're the best. And they don't, they don't really look uh, that much like my parents or my grandmother. Um, and uh, Alan, the, the boy, is much cuter than I was. Um, <laughs> so I, I just went for, you know, the people who are most charismatic and the people who we would want to spend the most time with and people that we would fall in love with. That was a big thing for me because I wanted everyone to be rooting for this family and the survival of this family. Um, So I told, I even told them, don't imitate my parents, don't imitate my family members. And I didn't even let them see pictures because I, I wanted them to have the freedom to, to do this their own way. Yeah. And I read somewhere, is Stephen related to you by marriage? Is that true? He is. He he and my cousin are married. Right. Um, Is that the connection or did you, did you also just maybe not use that family um, connection to to send the script his way? How, how, like, was that a factor in casting him? Yeah. Um, so I've known Stephen for a while because of the marital relationship, but we didn't know each other very well. And I've always thought I'm not going to send him anything. That was just internally like that. That would be so awkward. And then if 
if he doesn't want to do it, you know, I'm a human being, I'll be, I'll feel rejected. And I would kind of look at him at family reunions and think, look at this guy. He thinks he's better than me. You know, no, I'm just, I'm just joking. But um, yeah, but I, I did want to have like a respectful distance uh, with him professionally. And our agent actually said to me that she thinks that this is a perfect alignment for us because he had also mentioned that he wanted to do something that's more of a personal story and stuff like that. So she had seen my script and she finally said, you guys need to talk about this. And uh, she set up a call between us and I was so flattered uh, by Steven because first of all, he said, I want to help you make this movie. And he told me, I'm interested in being in this movie too, but if you think that's bad for this movie, then I won't do it. I just want to help you make it. And I, I took some time and I rewrote the script with him in mind. And it, it just dawned on me, no, you, you're perfect for this film. You know, and you're, you would be incredible in this role. And once that was established, I mean, uh, it, it was really a partnership that has been so life-giving and so fun for both of us. Um, I, f- I feel like we're kind of like brothers now, uh, just what we've gone through with this whole journey. Mm. I mean, how could it be bad that he was in it, honestly? I know, right? Now <laughs> I look back and, yeah. Mm. But there's a there's an Asian-American shyness or something, too much too much, uh, yeah, politeness there that, that was going on. <laughs> sure. Um, just like his role and I guess the way his career is, you know, plotting out, you know, off, off burning and, and Okja as well before it, um, just the traits that he brings. Um, can you speak to that kind of like how the nonverbal stuff, I mean, it works across everyone in this film, but particularly just the looks are, are kind of just where it, where it, hits. How did you work with him um, to, to build up this really complex character? Um, with him, I gave him just a lot of freedom. I, to, I told him, I, I trust him. I trust you. Uh, please just do your work as, as an artist because I, I just trust him. I, I, I let him take the script as a blank canvas. I don't, I don't tend to write uh, emotions into the script scripts because I, I like for actors to take that and interpret and that work on set I feel is just um, really the the beauty of, of making a film. So I noticed with him that he would perform things in such a subtle way and express so much with his face and gestures that in our editing we could take out a lot of dialogue that he would say. Um, for instance, there was a moment where he would talk about why he decided to leave California and move to Arkansas and get a farm, what was motivating him. Then we had dialogue of him talking about uh, how much he hated chicken sexing. But we found that you, you add those stuff, that stuff in, it's just superfluous to his performance because he's just embodying that and expressing it. Um, so I, I can't say enough about his work. He's so subtle and true. Like everything he does is just true. And he brings that to the kids and everybody around him, all the other actors too. Mm. And with Yeri playing Monica, um, you know, in the wrong mm-hmm. hands, that could be really a thankless role. She could be like the oh, for frowny, sure. yeah. you know, <laughs> buzzkill. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but she's absolutely not. And it's so graceful and you really shine like, you know, she doesn't have friends. She doesn't, doesn't have family there until her mum arrives. Yeah, can, can you talk about just like, you know, we do relate to, to Jacob um, and to David, but, but equally just we do walk finding ways for us to walk in everyone's footsteps. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the the care you took to maybe lift up a character that might have otherwise been a sideline role. Yeah, I remember with Monica, um, when when we were in the script stage, I would get some notes back from people saying, she's just negative. She just 
is saying negative things. But to me, that would always floor me because I, I, I never thought of her that way when I was writing or picturing her. I kind of come from a family of very quiet people, to be honest, where not much is said and so much is like in, in those moments. And when I met with Yeti, she totally got it. She totally understood what this character needs to be. She even worked with me in fleshing out certain things that needed to be there. For instance, she 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 told me, I just don't see any moment in which Monica is trying to bring fun to her kids in this story. And this is something that I feel Monica would be very much thinking about and, and wanting to do. And so the whole swing set scene was something that originated out of that dialogue with her. So it's that sort of work of mutually creating something with actors and, you know, seeing things in new ways that I just find so enlivening in the process. And same thing with Paul, uh, Will Patton, he, he would do that. And yeah, Yunya Jung was also um, so great at, she's a superbly comic actor. She's so funny as an actress. And uh, she had many suggestions on set that we would use to surprise Alan. Uh, for instance, her putting the chestnut in her mouth and offering it to him. That's something that she came up with. And we set it up so that Alan had no idea that she was going to do that. And uh, it, it creates one of my favorite moments uh, in the film. Yeah, no, it's a great moment. Um, and where did you find him? I mean, like you say, he's just cuteness personified. But um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We found him through our, our casting director, Julia Kim. We put the hardest task on her. We asked her to find these two kids who are bilingual, Korean and English, um, of this specific age and um, who are not actors, who are not trained actors, because we knew we were probably going to look for um, non-professionals for these two roles. So she did that in six weeks. That's the amount of time that she had. Um, so it's a, it's a tribute to her work and, and also a lot of luck that, that uh, he, these, these two kids answered the call and, and put in their audition. And from the start, we kind of knew that they were special, to be honest. Uh, you know, you just see him now and you can see that he's special, <laughs> uh, even in the trailer, you know. Yeah, exactly. You know, this should not be unique at all, but um, you centre the, the family's Koreanness in this community and it's kind of, um, you know, it, it's the rest, everyone else who's the other. And, um, you know, like with the weird cross thing and, um, you know, like <laughs> them and their ways. Yeah. Um, how, how did you approach setting up that, that storyline and centering the family's Koreanness in, in this um, new location. Yeah, I, I, I did feel from the start that I wanted the perspective to be within the families. And that was, that was just true to our experience growing up that outside of the home, that's where we saw foreigners. <laughs> that's where we <laughs> <Totally>. saw <laughs> the foreign language being spoken was outside of the home. And, and we were always trying to acculturate and try to figure out who are these people. My sister and I, we watched tons of movies growing up, uh, often like talking about, oh, this is how white people eat food or, you know, things that we're trying to figure out. So I, I just remember that perspective on things and wanted to start with that perspective with this film. So it's not a perspective of us as Westerners trying to help this family along and become one of us, but instead it's really within this family as they really try to define themselves and figure out each other, most of all. Um, that that was the most important thing within this story, that the, the internal dynamics and inter internal story mm. and all the outside world is almost a texture to that. It, it creates isolation, creates loneliness. Um, so I thought those elements of the story were more interesting to the drama of what's going on inside. 
And was there, did you take care with like with, you know, how everything can be interpreted? Um, how like with things coming across as a statement or, you know, like were you conscious of that and the way you'd frame scenes and, and characters? I'm honestly hoping to be politically a bit, uh, uh, what's the, what's the word here? Uh, not aligned here when it comes to, uh, red state versus blue state. Cause we have so much of that here in the U S and, uh, my in- interest is in kind of cutting across those categories and, and framing a new discussion on what it means to be just a human, a, a family member and, and finding ways to connect with each other. So, to me, that those are my politics with this, and that's kind of what I was trying to get across with it. I certainly am not criticizing uh, red states. That that was a big concern that I had going in, uh, just because you know I live in LA, and th- this is sort of the mindset that I'm often in uh, where I live. And uh, at the same time, I grew up in a very much a red state, mm-hmm. and a lot of my friends are 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 Republicans or very conservative, and. We might disagree, but still there's much more that creates our friendship and creates bonds between us than political views, you know, these these silly political arguments that, that we're having. So I, I've been he- so hesitant to even talk about Trump and, and all these things because I want this film to be for everybody. I don't, I don't want it to just be for blue state people or, you know, say that this is like against Trump. It's it's really more for things than against things is, is what I'm hoping. And I would love to talk just about the cinema language. Uh, you know, I've got so many questions about that and the way you've made this film. Um, you know, the, it's very nondescript mobile home, you know, in kind of 70s, 80s mm-hmm. brown. Yeah. Um, but you shoot it in such a beautiful way and, like, it's such warmth and, you know, brown's amber. I just like the, the way that um, the reverential way you shoot the film, just the beauty of it. Can we talk about the, the look you wanted for it? It's a very long way to ask that. <laughs> Oh, no, no. That, uh, I'm so glad you're asking that because I can talk about my favorite people. Because uh, Lachlan Milne, who is a fellow Australian, uh, was, was our cinematographer and our production designer was Yong Ok Lee. And we had an amazing uh, lighting technician um, named Steve Mathis as well. They really created this elegant look. And this was what we were going for from the start. We, we were always talking about trying to make this family feel like they are existing in a different time and to try to create a timeless feeling with it, um, almost like a fable or like a classic Hollywood story or something like that. So we we always wanted to set it apart from maybe the aesthetics that we might be seeing a lot in, in these types of stories and to invest it more with the feeling of a dream and fable. So those were the words that would often bounce around on set. And those guys, Lockie, Yongok, Steve, they they were mavens. They're just wizards. I don't know how to describe how they could pull off exactly what I'm thinking and, and feeling. And um, yeah, uh, I, I just owe it all to them, that, that look. Well, yeah, thank you, Isaac. Great. No, I know you're a busy man today. Thank you so much and congratulations on the film. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, thanks so much. So that was Lee Isaac Chung, the writer-director of Minari, which um, comes out in Australian cinemas on February 18th. And uh, as you know, uh, Fee and I both loved it and we definitely recommend you go out and see it. Mm. I really liked that uh, anecdote about how the actress who played the mother, Monica, um, worked the swing into the storyline. Yeah, like it's such good feedback. Like, you know, if he probably didn't think to have a moment where she showed how invested she was in trying to make the kids, um, you know, 
have a happy time. But uh, yeah, because you see, she's you need to send the film. But yeah, you see her working with a plank of wood, and you're thinking, well, what is she doing there? (laughs) But anyway, it becomes a nice moment. Um, She builds a little swing for them. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful film. Yes. And uh, so that leads us to back to awards. We kind of strayed Uh, from awards to chat about the film. What do you think its chances are and and sort of do you have a read on kind of I guess where the the money's going right now? Well, I mean, people may be aware of this because of how unfair this is. Um, I didn't want to bring it up with him in the interview because I didn't want him to talk about something negative about his film because there were so many other great things to talk about. But Minari is only in the Golden Globes as a foreign language film, not as an American film, not as a best film contender, et cetera, um, which I think is stupid um, because it's based on a rule that films need to be 50, at least 50% in English. Mm. Um, but this film is entirely an American film. Like it's literally about the American dream and the experience. So that's stupid. Um, He also should be up for director awards and, you know, should have so much more. Um, But that said, there's a lot of Screen Actors Guild awards coming its way. I have no doubt that it'll be in contention for, you know, Producers Guild and directors and all of those coming down the pipe. Ideally Oscars too because it's, yeah, I I, I don't know what else a film needs to do to be considered. (laughs) It's a very American film. Mm. Um, Yeah, but it's a pretty packed, you know, field this year. Like, you know, I've already on the record for my love for One Night in Miami, but, yeah, yeah, they're all great films, but they're up against some that aren't, so all I'm going for are the ones I love. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting. I mean, Oscar's not until April this year, so everything's kind of been the, the awards calendar is is a mess. Let's face it. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, uh, I was thinking we don't want to peak too soon talking about awards season. I mean, we're in for a long haul because nominations don't come out until mid March. Yeah, and then the event themselves are twenty fifth of April in Australia. So yeah. there's so stay, probably a few films we'll be talking about. A stay bit. tuned. Yeah, go watch watch everything. Go watch them so that you know what we're talking about Um, and go watch Minari twice because it's better on the second watch. It's gorgeous. Cried a little bit more. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's that's great. I I feel like we've covered a lot Um, for a first show, for a first time, you know, back in the the saddle after after a little break. Um, And so all I can say is... Go out there and subscribe to SBS The Playlist wherever you get your podcasts and give us a lot of stars and leave us a nice review because it helps people to find the show and let us know what you thought of the movies and TV shows we discussed and what were you watching over summer on Facebook or Twitter at SBS Movies and I'm on Twitter at Ben Nguyen TV. And I'm on Twitter at Anything But Fifi. And the playlist is produced by Jeremy Wilmot who joins us from the other side of a glass screen. Because this is 2021 and we have to do things this way. So, (laughs) hi, Jeremy. Hi. Until next time. (laughs) Stay well and thanks for listening. Bye.